This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we have made it. We are almost to the end of the year. So just like I told you in the last podcast, our last two podcasts of the year are going to be the best books of 2019 and the best podcasts of 2019. So make sure you come back here next week so you can get my favorite podcast from this entire year of all the different podcasts that are out there. So make sure you come back for that. But for today, We're going to look at the best books of 2019. So one thing, just to throw this out there, because I have to throw this out there every year. These are not all books that were released in 2019. And to be honest with you, as I'm thinking about it, of the books I'm going to talk about today, there might only be one or two that were actually released in this year. Okay. The thing about it is most book lists that you have at the end of the year, the best of books of this particular year, they're books that are released in that year. However, As with most guys, you're not reading 100, 150 books a year. Most of you probably aren't doing that. Again, I'm I'm usually 20 to 30 books a year type person, right? And so there's going to be a lot of books that you miss out on if you're only looking at the best books for that particular year. And again, we have hundreds and hundreds of years worth of books at our disposal that we can just hit a button and have on our phones or have on our laptops or, you know, have basically, you know, in our houses at any point in time. So that's not what this list is. Okay. These are just the best books that I was able to take in this year. And I got a bunch of different categories for them. So if you've listened to this, this is actually our third best of books podcast. And every year I kind of have different categories of each, but at the very, very end, I will tell you what I think was the best book that I read this year. And that is the book that I want to make sure that all of you guys read at some point. Okay. And so for me, as I've tried to tell you guys a lot is I'm not a great reader. Okay. Now, some of you guys, you can sit down, you can read an entire book in an evening, you know, like if your wife's gone or if the kids are out doing some sort of activity, you can just sit down and read an entire book. That's not how I do it. At best, I'm a one chapter an evening type person. And, you know, I like books with shorter chapters so I can kind of like get to the end and feel that, you know, God, yeah, I got there. We made it. Um, And then there's those other books that have like hundred page chapters. And it's like, okay, it's kind of like a slog to get through those things. But one thing that's interesting about this year is about halfway through the year, I started kind of reevaluating how I read and reevaluating why I read certain books and why I don't read certain other ones. And I kind of made a decision. I had an epiphany that there have been a lot of books that I've read over the last several years that I knew they were crap about a third of the way in, maybe even before that. But I couldn't not finish them because I had my books, you know, goal for the year, right? So, oh, my goal is to read 25 books. And, you know, if I put this book down just a third of the way through, dang it, I'm going to have to, you know, start another book that kind of puts me behind. And so what I've kind of made the decision of is that I'm not going to do that anymore. Okay. So in, in the future years, and I'll talk a little bit more about this on the first podcast of next year in terms of goal setting and things like that. But in future years, I'm going to set a, a smaller goal in terms of the amount of books that I want to read, but I actually want to read them at kind of a higher clip. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of books that are longer, maybe more dense, but again, I'm just trying to get to the end of the year and make sure I hit my books reading, uh, you know, goals and all those different things. And so I will just kind of go through books and not reread parts, even if I don't understand them, just because I need to finish. And then there are books that are awful that I will just, oh, fine, okay. And then it takes me another two, three weeks, maybe even a month or two to finish a particular book. 
I'm not going to do that anymore. So that's just a little something that I'm going to try and do. Uh, that's one thing that I want to kind of get y'all's feedback on. Like when you read, what are the ways that you do it? Is it easy for you? All those different things. But again, like I said, we'll get more into that here next year. So today we're going to be talking about 10 different books. Okay. And they're all in different categories. They're not in any particular order, except at the end, I'm going to give you my most disappointing book that I read in 2019. And then again, the best book of 2019. So make sure that you hang with me to the end. And without further ado, let's get into the first book I want to talk to you about. And this book is the most interesting book, the most interesting book that I read in 2019. And that is Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. Ego is the Enemy. And so just kind of give you an idea on each one of these books, I'm going to kind of give you a description. And I'm usually just taking the description right off of the the author's website or Amazon or something like that. I'm going to kind of give you the idea as to why I think it is that particular category. So why is it the most interesting? My favorite quote from the book, those things, and I'll make sure I give you the links to everything at the end. So back to Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. I'm going to go ahead and read the description to you here. Many of us insist the main impediment to a full successful life is the outside world. In fact, the most common enemy lies within our ego. Early in our careers, it impedes learning and the cultivation of talent. With success, it can blind us to our faults and so future problems. In failure, it magnifies each blow and makes recovery more difficult. At every stage, ego holds us back. Ego is the enemy draws on a vast array of stories and examples from literature, philosophy, to history. We meet fascinating figures such as George Marshall, Jackie Robinson, Catherine Graham, Bill Belichick, and Eleanor Roosevelt, who all reached the highest levels of power and success by conquering their own egos. Their strategies and tactics can be ours as well. In an era that glorifies social media, reality TV, and other forms of shameless self-promotion, the battle against ego must be fought on many fronts. Armed with the lessons in this book, as Holiday writes, you will be less invested in the story you tell about your own specialness, and as a result, you will be liberated to accomplish the world-changing work you've set out to achieve. Okay, so that's the description there. The reason why I think it's the most interesting book I read this year is because of what it said right there in the little intro, in the little uh, summary there. It's got a lot of stories in there. There's a lot of anecdotes. And so if you're one of those people that doesn't necessarily like to read through a big long novel or story because you're having to follow all these different nuances and different plot uh, angles and characters and all that, okay, well, this is a book that has a lot of nugget-sized takeaways. And that's why it's interesting because what this book can do for you, it's, it's not a very long read, 250 pages, 300 pages, something like that. But what this book can do for you is it can send you down a rabbit hole that will improve you. Okay. So it could be a rabbit hole. So he mentioned, you know, uh, George Marshall. So maybe you're like, oh, I'm not as familiar with George Marshall. Well, now maybe you're reading books about George Marshall. Now maybe you're reading about certain things that happened in his life. And so those are things that I think are really, really awesome in these types of books is that you have these different takeaways. Okay. Now I'm going to do my favorite quote here from this book. So this was actually a story where he was talking about John Boyd, and that is not a name that you should probably know, but John Boyd is a fighter pilot. Okay. And he's actually considered by a lot of people to be one of the better fighter pilots, but it's his impact that he's had on future pilots and future soldiers or, you know, younger soldiers or something like that, that have kind of made him famous in the military world. So I'm going to go ahead and read this quote from, uh, from this. It's just a little story about John Boyd. The speech Boyd gave to a protege in 1973 makes this clear. Sensing what he knew to be a critical inflection point in the life of a young officer, Boyd called him in for a meeting. Like many high achievers, the soldier was insecure and impressionable. He wanted to be promoted and he wanted to do well. He was a leaf that could be blown in any direction that, and Boyd knew it. So he heard a speech that day that Boyd would give again and again until it became a tradition and a rite of passage for a generation of transformative military leaders. 
Tiger, one day you will come to a fork in the road, Boyd said to him, and you're going to have to make a decision about which direction you want to go. Using his hands to illustrate, Boyd marked off these two directions. If you go that way, you can be somebody. You will have to make compromises and you will have to turn your back on your friends. But you will be a member of a club and you will get promoted and you will get good assignments. Then Boyd paused to make the alternative clear. Or, he said, you can go that way and you can do something. Something for your country and your Air Force and yourself. If you decide you want to do something, you may not get promoted and you may not get the good assignments and you certainly will not be the favorite of your superiors but you won't have to compromise yourself. You will be a true friend and to yourself. And your work might make a difference. To be somebody or to do something. In life, there is often a roll call. That's when you will have to make a decision. And then Boyd concluded with words that would guide the young man and many of his peers for the rest of their lives. To be or to do. Which way will you go? All right, guys. Most interesting book I read in 2019, Ego is the Enemy. Next book here, the most applicable book, the most applicable book, and that is Building a Story Brand, Clarify Your Message So Customers Will Listen by Donald Miller. Okay, so let me read the description here. Donald Miller's story brand process is a proven solution to the struggle business leaders face when talking about their businesses. This revolutionary method for connecting with customers provides listeners with the ultimate competitive advantage, revealing the secret for helping their customers understand the compelling benefits of using their products, ideas, or services. Building a story brand does this by teaching listeners the seven universal story points all humans respond to, the real reason customers make purchases, how to simplify a brand message so people understand it, and how to create the most effective messaging for websites, brochures, and social media. Whether you are a marketing director of a multi-billion dollar company, the owner of a small business, a politician running for office, or the lead singer of a rock band, building a story brand will forever transform the way you talk about who you are, what you do, and the unique value you bring to your customers. So the reason why I think this is the most applicable is because it's useful in all contexts. This book is incredibly useful. I've suggested this book to so many different people in a myriad of different contexts. And the the interesting thing about that is it becomes a reference book for a lot of people. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was in a meeting with a guy that I had suggested this book to six, seven months ago, something like that. And he literally pulled it out in the middle of a meeting to make reference to it because it gives you an idea about what messaging is. And so I have got two quotes for you that are kind of my favorite quotes because this kind of gives you a summary of what the book is like. So the first is a short one. It's actually just a a title of a section of the book. It's called Story Brand Principle Number One. The customer is the hero, not your brand. And we repeat that. The customer is the hero, not your brand. With most brands out out there, guys, and you know this to be true, the brand is the hero. The product is the hero. The service is the hero. They're the thing that's going to make everything great. But with most stories, that's not who we, that's not who we align with. We we don't think about that in terms of the hero being somebody else. We think about ourselves as the hero. And so as a consumer, we are the hero, right? In the story as it were, right? But what the brand needs to be, what the product needs to be is the guide. And, And so the example that he uses is for all you Star Wars nerds out there. It's, you got Luke Skywalker. He's the hero, but the guide is Yoda. And so Luke Skywalker is the consumer and Yoda is the product or service. Okay. And then I'm going to go ahead and give you the the kind of the story that they, they use. And so this is kind of what they break down. So here's another quote from here. Here is nearly every story you see or hear in a nutshell, a character who wants something encounters a problem before they can get it at the peak of their despair. 
A guide steps into their lives, gives them a plan, and calls them to action. That action helps them avoid failure and ends in a success. Okay. So again, guys, I've used this book in a myriad of contexts. I've helped some organizations kind of get their stuff together. I'm going to be using some of the elements of story brand and some of the other things that Donald Miller and his crew do to, to shift some things with undaunted life. So that'll be coming uh, before too long, just in terms of the messaging and how we get that out to people. So again, the most applicable book that I read in 2019 is building a story brand. All right, next book here. The most challenging book that I read in 2019, the most challenging, and that is The Right Side of History, How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great by Ben Shapiro. Okay, so let me give you the description here. In 2016, New York Times bestselling author Ben Shapiro spoke at the University of California, Berkeley. Hundreds of police officers were required to protect his speech. What was so frightening about Shapiro? He came to argue that Western civilization is in the midst of a crisis of purpose and ideas that we have let grievances replace our sense of community and political expediency limit our individual rights, that we are teaching our kids that their emotions matter more than rational debate, and that the only meaning in life is arbitrary and subjective. As a society, we are forgetting that almost everything great that has ever happened in the history happened because of people who believed in both Judeo-Christian values and in the Greek-born power of reason. In the right side of history, Shapiro sprints through more than 3,500 years, dozens of philosophers, and the thicket of modern politics to show how our freedoms are built upon the twin notions that every human being is made in God's image, and that human beings were created with reason capable of exploring God's world. We can thank these values for their birth of science, the dream of progress, human rights, prosperity, peace, and artistic beauty. Jerusalem and Athens built America, ended slavery, defeated the Nazis and the communists, lifted billions from poverty, and gave billions more spiritual purpose. Jerusalem and Athens built America, ended slavery, defeated the Nazis and the communists, lifted billions from poverty, and gave billions more spiritual purpose. Yet we are in the process of abandoning Judeo-Christian values and Greek natural law, watching our civilization collapse into an age-old tribalism, individualistic hedonism, and moral subjectivism. We believe we can satisfy ourselves with intersectionality, scientific materialism, progressive politics, authoritarian governance, or nationalistic solidarity. We can't. The West is special, and in the right side of history, Ben Shapiro bravely explains how we have lost sight of the moral purpose that drives each of us to be better, the sacred duty to work together for the greater good. So guys, and again, I I said one of those uh, sentences in there uh, for effect. I said it twice in a row. The thing about this book, and guys, if you're if this all sounds familiar, episode 68 of this podcast, go back and listen to that because I spent, I think, 45 minutes talking just about this book because uh, Ben Shapiro's team sent me a copy of the book, an advanced copy so that I could get it to you guys. Go listen to that because I go into way more, way more detail. But why this is the most challenging book that I read in 2019 is because it's incredibly dense. And I talked about that in episode 68, but there's a lot of big ideas in this very short book. And the book moves at breakneck pace, right? And so it's not a very long book, but the concepts are so big. And so I was actually expecting the book to be much larger whenever it came in. And so I was excited initially because I was like, oh, it's just this little book. It's going to be no big deal. I'll just fly right through this thing, man. And the thing is, is it's easy to follow, but it's so dense. And so this is maybe around the time where I was thinking to myself like, man, that section didn't really land with me. I really should go back and reread that, but uh, I got to keep going, right? 
that may have been when that idea kind of surfaced for me that that would kind of help me kind of change my philosophy on terms of how I read. But again, the book is very, very dense. It is a challenging book, but it's an accessible book at the same time. So I've got a couple of quotes from this that I feel like are interesting. One is just the very intro of the book and it's, it's very quick. It's just this, this book is about two mysteries. The first mystery, why are things so good? The second mystery, why are we blowing it? Again, I said about this in in episode 68, I think that was one of the more poignant beginnings of a book that I've ever seen in my entire life. Because again, like you could sum up the entire book in basically those two questions. Why are things so good and why are we blowing it? So I thought that that was very, very good. But later on in the book, there was this short quote, so I want to give it to you here. Rights and duties, according to the founders, were simply two sides of the same coin. While some critics of the founders have claimed that they ignore duties on behalf of rights, thereby setting the course for societal disintegration, that's a misreading of the founding philosophy. As George Washington states in his first inaugural address, the foundation of our national policy will be laid in the pure and immutable principles of private morality. There exists in the economy and of course of nature an insoluble union between virtue and happiness. Again, guys, this this book had so many huge concepts, a lot of great things. If you have not read this book yet, you certainly need to do that. Again, the most challenging book that I read in 2019, The Right Side of History. Now, the next one, the best short read of the year, the best short read, and that is The Old Man and the Sea by Ernst Hemingway, okay? So, a short description here. The Old Man and the Sea is one of Hemingway's most enduring works. Told in language of great simplicity and power, it is the story of an old Cuban fisherman down on his luck and his supreme ordeal, a relentless, agonizing battle with a giant marlin far out in the Gulf Stream. Here, Hemingway recasts in strikingly contemporary style the classic theme of courage in the face of defeat, of personal triumph won from loss. Written in 1952, this hugely successful novella confirmed his power and presence in the literary world and played a large part in his winning the 1954 Nobel Prize for Literature. So, the thing is, guys, I had not read any Hemingway before this, okay? I don't know why. I have no idea why I didn't get any of that in high school and certainly not in college, but it's one of those things that you know that name and it's such a giant name and you know some of the some of the stories and things like that, but I just had never really had the time to get into anything, okay? But uh, a couple of years ago, I picked up a copy of The Old Man in the Sea because a buddy of mine, Jordan, suggested it to me and he's a well-read guy and he's got a lot of different things, but the thing about Jordan is he's way more into fiction than I am. As I've told you guys, I think that is the only fiction book that I've read this year out of the 2025 I'll end up reading. That's the only one. I just don't enjoy fiction. It's harder for me to follow. It just kind of is what it is. But the reason why I think this is the best short read is because I was absolutely entranced by this book. I was, I was, you know, like I told you, it's hard for me sometimes to read books that have longer chapters. It's hard for me to be engaged. I fall asleep, things like that. But the copy of this book that I had, I don't know if it's the same with every copy. It was just one long thing. There weren't, there weren't chapters, right? There was no separation of any of the sections. And so when I realized that I was like, oh no, this is going to be horrific for me. I'm going to, I'm not going to have any chance of hanging on and, you know, making sure to keep all this stuff straight. And I didn't have that issue. Like this was an incredibly, incredibly um, entertaining book and, and it was very exciting. And you felt like the thing about it, I guess that most people look at is you feel like you're in the boat with this guy, with this fisherman, you feel his pain. But the coolest thing, cause I don't have a favorite quote from here because you know, you can't, there's not like quotable stuff from this book necessarily. But the thing that I like the most about this book is that it was a story of resilience. I'm not going to spoil the ending for you guys, for any of you guys that haven't read a 70 year old book, but it's just one of those things that 
it was an unbelievable story of resilience. And this guy and kind of his internal thoughts and the things that he was uh, going through as he was trying to nab this this large marlin after he'd kind of been down on his luck and wasn't having really good luck getting, um, you know, fishing and getting any fish. You know, his relationship that he had with, with a, a young man that, that lived in his community. And those things were really, really important. They had a lot of undercurrents and undertones within this story. But again, it's a quick read. I don't know. I can't remember how long it is. Again, I read digital. And so the page numbers are all uh, funky and wonky. But again, it's a tremendous story if you haven't read it yet. So guys, best short read I did of 2019, The Old Man and the Sea. Now, next book is the most useful book that I read in 2019, and that is Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions by Greg Kokel. So here's a description here. In a world increasingly indifferent to Christian truth, followers of Christ need to be equipped to communicate with those who do not speak their language or accept their source of authority. In Tactics, the 10th anniversary edition, which was just released here uh, not that long ago, Greg Kogel demonstrates how to artfully regain control of conversations, keeping them moving forward in constructive ways through thoughtful diplomacy. You'll learn how to stop challengers in their tracks and how to turn the tables on questions or provocative statements. Most important, you'll learn how to get people to think about Jesus. Tactics provides the game plan for communicating the compelling truth about Christianity with confidence and grace. Drawing on extensive experience defending Christianity in the public square, Kokel shows reader how to initiate conversations effortlessly, present the truth clearly, cleverly, and persuasively, graciously and effectively expose faulty thinking, skillfully manage the details of dialogue, and maintain an engaging, disarming style even under attack. So this is a book that my Sunday night crew read, and it's a group of guys that would mainly consider themselves to be Christians. But the reason why I thought it was the most useful is there are some apologetics books that are a little bit too too heady. You know, if you're having a discussion with somebody that maybe is a non-Christian or a, a non-theist or someone that doesn't believe that the Bible is, is, you know, real, it's just a book of myths or something like that, some apologetics books are going to be so far over your head and thus you're not going to be able to give some of that content to those other people, okay? But the reason why this book is so useful is because it has unbelievably practical ways of discussing things with people. And so one thing that was interesting is I did read this book probably about five or six years ago and I reread it this year. And the cool thing about it is, is there are things that I've been employing even on this podcast, but certainly in conversations, dyadic conversations with people that were, you know, of divergent opinions from mine and for divergent worldviews. And I use a lot of these tactics. And so I don't know if some of those just came out naturally or if I've, you know, subconsciously put those into practice since I read this book, you know, so long ago. But it's one of those things that it's helped me to be able to get to the positive end of these conversations because sometimes whenever people get into conversations with people that have differing opinions than them, they think it's bad if they win. They, they think it's bad if they, they prove the point or, or get the best point across. And I feel, especially with Christians, they feel like they, they shouldn't, they feel like if they win a conversation with somebody that they've somehow dominated them, that they somehow, you know, put them to heel or something like that. And, and that's just not necessarily the case. There's just a lot of times where us, especially as Christians, especially as for the most part, emasculated churchmen, we basically go into these conversations and it's just like, well, agree to disagree. Like, and we just kind of think that's okay. But in, in a lot of these situations, when we get pushed, we should push back. And when you think of, you know, you know, Peter and the Apostle Paul and William Farrell and, and people like that from church history. And these are people that when they were pushed, they pushed back. Now, they, they didn't push back just out of spite or to prove a point or law. Oh, no, I'm a bigger man than that. that like, that's not really what they did, right? It was a much different tact that they took, but they were going to push back. And this book does a fantastic job of showing you how to do that. 
So I've got three quotes here that I wanted to pull out for you because there's a lot of good, useful things, but some of them come in stories. And so I just wanted to kind of pull out a couple of tidbits here. So here's one. Beware when rhetoric becomes a substitute for substance. You always know that a person has a weak position when he tries to accomplish with the clever use of words what arguments cannot alone do. And so the thing is interesting about all this is that a lot of times when you get into these discussions with people, especially if you get into a discussion with somebody that is um, more high-minded, maybe an intellectual or something like that, um, it's one of those things that they will try to kind of overwhelm you with vocabulary. I guess it took me a long time to get there. Maybe I need to work on my vocabulary, but it, they try to overwhelm me with that. But again, if, if they're trying to use the flowery words to outdo you, it's a good hint that they probably have a really crappy position. Here's another little quote here. Simply put, never make a statement, at least at first, when a question will do the job. And so one of the biggest things, one of the biggest things that I can say to most people is whenever you're in an argument with somebody, your tendency is going to be to want to jump right back in. Even early on, you're not going to try to define terms. You're not going to try to make sure that you're on the same page. You're not even going to try to make sure that you're arguing about the same thing. You just want to hop back in. Well, what about this situation? What about that situation? And you might throw out three or four different new things that the other person has to contend with. And it doesn't actually keep the conversation going, right? So one of the greatest things that you can do is when you ask a question, not only does it show that you're genuinely interested, if you ask a good question that is based off of the last thing that they said, it shows that you're listening. It shows that you're actually engaged in the conversation. And that is something that I've used to a a tremendous degree in sales, in relationships, in those types of discussions. Okay. Last little quote I wanted to give you from this book was this. Believing in leprechauns is irrational. Believing in God, by contrast, is like believing in atoms. The process is exactly the same. You follow the evidence of what you can see to conclude the existence of something you cannot see. The effect needs a cause adequate to explain it. Okay. So that is something that I found was very interesting. There's a lot of different quotes that are like that, that are incredibly practical things that you can actually put into use. And that is why that the most useful book that I read in 2019 is tactics. All right, guys, the next book is this one, the most impactful book that I read in 2019. And that is drum roll, please. I finally did it. The Gulag Archipelago. Okay. So this is by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So let me read the short description here. That was from Amazon. The best nonfiction book of the 20th century, according to Time magazine. Volume one of the gripping epic masterpiece, Solzhenitsyn's chilling report of his arrest and interrogation, which exposed to the world the vast bureaucracy of secret police that haunted Soviet society. And it features a new foreword by Anne Applebaum. Volume two of the Nobel Peace Prize winner's towering masterpiece, the story of Solzhenitsyn's entrance into the Soviet prison camps, where he would remain for nearly a decade. Volume three of the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, Nobel Prize winner's towering masterpiece, Solzhenitsyn, moving account of the resistance within the Soviet labor camps and his own release after eight years. After serving as a decorated captain in the Soviet army during World War II, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 1918 to 2008, was sentenced to prison for eight years for criticizing Stalin and the Soviet government in private letters. Solzhenitsyn vaulted from unknown school teacher to internationally famous writer in 1962 with the publication of his novella, One Day in the Life of Ivan Dinesovich. Dinesovich, there you go. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1968. The writer's increasingly vocal opposition to the regime resulted in another arrest, a charge of treason, and the expulsion from the USSR in 1974, the year the Gulag Archipelago, his epic history of the Soviet prison system, first appeared in the West. And then there's a couple of quotes here from Jordan Peterson and one from Ann Applebaum. The thing about this book is if you haven't heard about this book, it's because either you haven't been paying attention, you don't know who Jordan Peterson is, any of those types of things. The reason why it's the most impactful book is because it gives you 
a deep dive and look behind the curtain of communism and of parts of socialism. And when, when the government is given this overwhelming amount of control and it's controlled by people that are operating on an atheistic worldview, kind of what happens. Okay. And here's the thing. I read the abridged version and the abridged version was still like a thousand pages long. Okay. So if you read the whole thing, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of pages and guys, the stories are horrific. Like it's some of the worst stuff that you can imagine. Again, whenever, whenever it was said that, you know, God, God was dead. It was wondering what would the 20th century look like? This is one of the things that happened in the 20th century is the archipelago, the labor camps, uh, the prison camps that they had in the Soviet union. And if you're not familiar with what happened then, I, it's kind of one of those things that leads directly to modern people, especially young kids, maybe college age kids that are, they kind of think communism is okay. They think socialism is okay. They think, uh, you know, government that's bigger and has more power and more say, even on morality and things like that. That's, this is the only way they could get to that idea is if they don't know about history like this. Okay. Now this isn't one of those books that I can necessarily say, yeah, have your 15 year old read this because it's a really, really difficult book. And again, it's forever long. It'll take them two years to read it or something like that. But the thing about it is, is it's an incredibly important book. And so possibly it's something that you could read yourself and distill down and teach some of those lessons to your children. Because here's the thing, a lot of their public school teachers, they actually believe this nonsense. They believe in, you know, communist uh, things from the communist manifesto. Uh, Marxism doesn't seem that crazy to them. Socialistic tendencies is kind of where they, they would lean. And again, I'm, I'm being pejorative and talking about all of them, but at the same time, these are things that the kids aren't learning anywhere else. Okay. Unless they're, they're following some more conservative, uh, YouTube channels or things like that, or listening to podcasts or something like that. They may not even get this information, you know, and I'm not thinking that, you know, in the public schools are all of a sudden going to teach that Hitler was just an okay guy that made some mistakes. Like, I think we're going to be okay with that, but it's just like, we're, they're missing out on the fact, like, why were these people evil and how were they even capable of doing the horrible things that they did, right? So again, guys, how, how do you pull out a favorite quote from a horribly dark book that's, you know, thousands of pages long, but there was one story that I thought was interesting that I wanted to share with you guys. So here's a short, quick story from that. And again, my Russian's not great. So I think there's a couple of Russian names in there. So just forgive me uh, in, in advance. So here we go. You know what? Actually, we're just going to skip to the meat of the story. So this is a story about these interrogators that were uh, basically in the face of this old woman. They were trying to get this old woman to give give them information about this guy that had come through the area that had stayed at her house in Moscow, blah, 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 blah. So let's get into the quote here. So here we go. They shook their fist in the little old woman's face and she replied, there is nothing you can do with me, even if you cut me into pieces. After all, you are afraid of your bosses and you are afraid of each other and you are even afraid of killing me. But... I am not afraid of anything. I would be glad to be judged by God right this minute. So I thought that was a cool story because there's so much depravity and there's so many negative things that happened to the people that were, uh, I guess you could say enslaved, but in prison during this time. But this woman was a gangster. And so I don't know where she got this, but she's Russian and it just kind of is what it is. But again, guys, it's an incredibly difficult book, but it'll leave a lasting imprint on you. It, there's just no way it can. Uh, you can look through the lens of a lot of things that happen in this book and apply that to what we're seeing today, even in modern culture. Hear what we see with some of the things that are being said by the modern left in American culture or in the UK or things like that. So very, very impactful book. In fact, it's the most impactful book that I read in 2019, The Gulag Archipelago. All right. The next book is one that I'm actually, to be, to be honest, I'm in the middle of reading it, but it is the most entertaining book that I've read in 2019. And by the time you get this podcast, I will have likely finished this book, but it's Empire of the Summer Moon. 
Quanah Parker and the Rise and Fall of the Comanches, the most powerful Indian tribe in American in American history by S.C. Gwynn. So if any of that sounds familiar, it's probably because you listen to the Joe Rogan podcast. And this is a book that he has mentioned on his podcast three or four times in the last several weeks. And then also he actually had S.C. Gwynn on his podcast this week to specifically talk about this book. So this is a guy that's, yeah, I think from Connecticut, he's from the Northeast, but he became incredibly enamored with things that were happening uh, in um in the old West and, and things like that. And uh, before I get too much further, I need to go ahead and read you the description for the book uh, that was on Amazon. Empire of the Summer Moon spans two astonishing stories. The first traces the, the rise and fall of the Comanches, the most powerful Indian tribe in American history. The second entails one of the most remarkable narratives ever to come out of the Old West, the epic saga of the pioneer woman Cynthia Ann Parker and her mixed blood son, Quana, who became the last and greatest chief of the Comanches. Although listeners may be more familiar with the names Apache and Sioux, it was in fact the legendary fighting ability of the Comanches that determined just how and when the American West opened up. They were so masterful at war and so skillful with their arrows and lances that they stopped the northern drive of colonial Spain from Mexico and halted the French expansion westward from Louisiana. While settlers arriving in Texas from the eastern United States were surprised to find the frontier being rolled backwards by Comanches incensed by the invasion of their tribal lands. So effective were the Comanches that they forced the creation of the Texas Rangers and account for the advent of the new weapon specifically designed to fight them, the six-gun. The war with the Comanches lasted four decades, in effect holding up the development of the new American nation. Gwynn's exhilarating account delivers a sweeping narrative that encompasses Spanish colonialism, the Civil War, the destruction of the buffalo herds, and the arrival of the railroads, a historic feast for anyone interested in how the United States came into being. So here's the thing, guys, is I'm not big on a lot of history books because some history books are incredibly uh, they're, they're supposed to be enthralling and thrilling, but they're just not. But the coolest thing about this book and, and why I think it's the most entertaining is because this happened in like the area where I grew up. And so the, the Comanche area, Comancheria was basically Southwest Oklahoma, Northwest Texas, you know, Northeast New Mexico and Southeast Colorado, kind of this big area. And again, like I said in there, these people held up the French and the Mexicans and the Spanish and the Americans for hundreds of years. And the thing about the Comanches is these weren't huge Indians. These were, you know, fairly small people. The horses that they rode weren't especially, you know, grand steeds that you would see, you know, some of the English generals and people rolling around in and those types of things. But the thing about this book is it gets, it delves into a lot of different topics about what was happening. This isn't like, you know, a timeline narrative necessarily. Every chapter kind of goes into something else, but every single thing that they talk about is ridiculously entertaining and interesting. Okay. So when you have Cynthia Ann Parker, if you don't know her story, she was kidnapped as a young girl from the Parker family because her family basically made a, a you know a homestead out way past civilization. And the Indians came, the Comanches came in, and they uh, killed a bunch of people. They also kidnapped some of the the young kids, and they lived with them for a while. But then you know people basically went back and re-kidnapped her and tried to get her uh, back into American you know Western society. But she wanted to kind of go back to the Comanches. And the whole thing there, you have Quanah Parker. He's on the cover of this book, and everything about him. When you talk about how uh, Colt de designed this five-shot revolving cylinder pistol uh, or revolver, and then he basically also talked about um, how he created the the six-gun, that firearm that basically, that was literally how the West was won, be was because of the invention of this. Um, everything is super, super interesting. And like I said, I'm about halfway through this book right now, and it's already the most entertaining book that I've read this year. 
Okay, it is just absolutely incredible. I cannot uh, recommend this book highly enough. And you might be thinking, why isn't this the best book that you would say for this year? And the thing about it is, guys, is if I had finished this by the time that I read this podcast, it may have been the best book that I got for this year. So I cannot recommend this book highly enough. And again, there's not like a bunch of quotes because this isn't like a self-help book. It's a historical book. But I did think that this was an incredibly important paragraph because it's interesting when you when you hear about like Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day or Thanksgiving and you hear people talk about the Native Americans, it seems like there are some people that have a kind of a disjointed view of what the American Indians were doing uh, before we settled and before we got here. And what I'm about to say is in no way um, saying that any of the atrocities that happened from the settlers to the Indians were, were you know, things that we should just ignore. And again, I'm, I'm Choctaw Indian myself. I have Choctaw Indian blood running through my, ba- my veins as we speak. But I was just surprised to see this paragraph in a book from a guy that I think is very clearly of the left, but I just want to go ahead and read this to you here. Thus, some chroniclers ignore the brutal side of Indian life altogether. Others, particularly historians who suggest that before white men arrive, Indian to Indian warfare was a relatively bloodless affair involving a minimum of bloodshed, deny it altogether. But certain facts are inescapable. American Indians were warlike by nature, and they were warlike for centuries before Columbus stumbled upon them. They fought over hunting grounds, to be sure, but they also made a good deal of brutal and bloody war that was completely unnecessary. The Comanches' relentless and never-ending pursuit of the hapless Tonkawas was a good example of this, as was their harassment of Apaches long after they had been driven from the buffalo grounds. Such behavior was common to all Indians in the Americas. Okay, so again, I just that was that was a paragraph that just stood out to me because. When you think about what is actually going on at this time, even before the settlers come in, these were not a a group of people that were just sitting around in their teepees and just kind of hanging out and like, oh, you know, going over to other tribes and saying, yeah, you can hunt here for a while. No big deal. Uh, It was a very brutal uh, time period for a lot of people. This is a... uh, you know, a group of people, no matter what tribe you were talking about, they had kind of deep religious beliefs, but they were all kind of pagan beliefs about the land and about the sun and water and dirt and all those types of things. These are not people that had any type of a Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, and it was a very interesting thing uh, to hear him talk about that in that way. But again, guys, this this book has been incredibly fun. Uh, there's a lot of books that I've read where it's just like, ah, take two, three days, maybe four or five days away from it because it's just not that interesting. But then as a sense of duty, I'll go in and finish that book. But for me, I literally can't wait to, to get to bed in the evenings, you know, when my wife falls asleep and then it's like, okay, hey, it's time to read another chapter of this book. So again, the most entertaining book that I've read of 2019, Empire of the Summer Moon. Okay, guys, just a few books left here. This one is the best reread of 2019, and that is Wild at Heart, Discovering the Secret of a Man's Soul, and that's by John Eldridge. So here's a description of a book that I'm sure all of you have read up to this point, but I'll give it to you anyway. Every man was once a boy, and every little boy has dreams, big dreams. Dreams of being the hero, of beating the bad guys, of doing daring feats and rescuing the damsel in distress. Every little girl has dreams too, of being rescued by her prince and swept up into a great adventure, knowing that she is the beauty. But what happens to those dreams when we grow up? Walk into most churches, have a look around and ask yourself, what is a Christian man? Without listening to what is said, look at what you find there. Most Christian men are bored. In Wild at Heart, John Eldridge invites men to recover their masculine heart defined in the image of a passionate God, and he invites women to discover the secret of a man's soul and to delight in the strength and wildness men were created to offer. So the reason why this is the best reread is because this is a book that I was... 
not certain that I would never read again, but it was a book that I never thought I would need to read again. Okay. So, but this was brought up in our Sunday night crew and we were going to be moving on to another book and we thought we were going to be moving on to empire of the summer moon. And then we kind of took a left turn. And it was like, okay, we're going to read wild at heart. And I remember initially being like, wild at heart. Cause I really liked the book. I remember really liking it. And you know, I helped a ministry in this area start. I, I helped found a ministry based on the teachings of John Eldridge from wild at heart. It's like, <clears throat> I don't need to reread this book. I could probably rewrite it myself, like, you know, verbatim, those types of things. So I was like, ah, fine, whatever. I'll just, I won't make a stink about it. I'll just go ahead and read this book. And the thing about it was, is I forgot a ton. <laughs> I forgot a ton of the stuff from the book. I could still give you most of the main points, but it's all the different nuanced points that I was able to kind of delve into more deeply this time because I knew all the signposts already. And that was the thing is it was just a book that is timeless. I mean, this the book's almost 20 years old, but the things that he's talking about in this book, especially the struggles of modern Christian men and the modern Christian church, they haven't gone away. Surprise, surprise. I mean, the church hasn't all of a sudden uh, had a big emphasis on making sure that they don't produce emasculated men that are morons like that. They haven't made this big change. It's still bad. If anything, it's gotten worse. Right. And the thing about it is this is the seminal John Eldridge work. John Eldridge has written a dozen books, maybe more than that. But at this point, none of them have had the impact of Wild at Heart. It is. And I've said this before. And some people, for whatever reason, they think I, I hate on John Eldridge. And I just don't know where they get that because I think Wild at Heart is the most important men's ministry book ever written. Like, I can't think of another one off the top of my head that is specifically for men, for Christian men, that is better than this book. Like there's, there's other ones that are good, but they're, they're just not better than this. So guys, there's a lot of quotes that I could give you from this book. And so I'm just going to give you one here because I thought it was the most poignant, especially for the guys in this audience. So here we go. We don't need accountability groups. We need fellow warriors, someone to fight alongside, someone to watch our back. A young man just stopped me on the street to say, I feel surrounded by enemies and I'm all alone. The whole crisis in masculinity today has be, has come because we no longer have a warrior culture, a place for men to learn to fight like men. We don't need a meeting of really nice guys. We need a gathering of really dangerous men. That's what we need. I think of Henry V of Agincourt. His army had been reduced to a small band of tired and weary men. Many of them are wounded. They are outnumbered five to one. But Henry rallies his troops to his side when he reminds them that they are not mercenaries, but a band of brothers. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves a curse. They are not here. And hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks. That fought with us. Yes, we need men to whom we can bear our souls. But it isn't going to happen with a group of guys you don't trust, who really aren't willing to go to battle with you. It's a long-standing truth that there is never a more devoted group of men than those who have fought alongside one another, the men of your squadron, the guys in your foxhole. It's, it will never be a large group, but we don't need a large group. We need a band of brothers willing to shed blood with us. So guys, if you go back a few podcasts away from this, when I talked about your foxhole, again, John Eldridge didn't come up with the concept of the foxhole, foxhole, neither did I, but that's the thing right there is most of us, if we're in a men's group, it's a really, really calm group of dudes that meet on Wednesday mornings at IHOP and just kind of talk about their weeks. Sorry, that's not a band of brothers, no matter what you call it. And I know there are groups of guys that get together and they kind of assign people to groups and they think that's a band of brothers. It's like, that's not a band of brothers either. You were put in that group. You didn't earn your way into that group. There was no pound of flesh. There was no sweat. There was no dedication to get into that group. You didn't earn that group. 
And the thing about it is, is most guys aren't even looking for a group of dangerous men. They are just fine being in a group of nice guys. And I tell people all the time, I was like, if the best thing that someone can say about you is that you're a really nice guy, you're doing this wrong. And so again, best reread I did of 2019, Wild at Heart. Now, here we go. Two books left. We got the most disappointing and the best book of 2019. The most disappointing book, and this is going to shock a lot of you, but let me explain. All right, let me explain. The Dichotomy of Leadership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. So before I get into why I didn't like this book, let me go ahead and read the description to you. With their first book, Extreme Ownership, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin set a new standard for leadership, challenging readers to become better leaders, better followers, and better people in both their professional and personal lives. Now, in the dichotomy of leadership, Jocko and Leif dive even deeper into the uncharted and complex waters of a concept first introduced in Extreme Ownership, finding balance between the opposing forces that pull every leader in different directions. Here, Willink and Babin get granular into the nuances that even successful leaders must navigate. Mastering the dichotomy of leadership requires understanding when to lead and when to follow, when to aggressively maneuver and when to pause and let things develop, when to detach and to let the team run, and when to give into the details and micromanage. In addition, every leader must take extreme ownership of everything that impacts their mission, yet utilize decentralized command by giving ownership to their team care deeply about their people and their individual success and livelihoods, yet look out for the good and overall of the overall team and above all accomplish the strategic mission. Exhibit the most important quality in a leader, humility, but also be willing to speak up and push back against questionable decisions that could hurt the team and the mission. With examples from the author's combat and training experiences in the SEAL teams, and then a de- demonstration of how each lesson applies to the business world, Willink and Babin clearly explained the dichotomy of leadership, skills that are mission critical for any leader and any team to achieve their ultimate goal, victory. So, even after reading that, you're thinking to yourself, Kyle, this sounds like it's right up your alley. This sounds like it's right up my alley. But here's the deal. There's, there's basically three things that I found very disappointing about this book. Okay, The first thing is that I was expecting more. So I liked extreme ownership. I thought the concepts were good, but there was something about extreme ownership that just, I don't want to say it didn't sit well with me. I think that's a little bit too extreme, but there were just certain things that I was like, yeah, okay. Like I just kind of passed over it. Like when they would say certain things, it just, I was like, yeah, sure. But the most of the book was really, really good. And I like Jocko's style. So who cares? I'm just going to, I'm just going to go with it. With dichotomy of leadership, I was expecting them to do more. I, I was expecting a little bit more. This was basically a rewrite of extreme ownership. Okay. And that is kind of the second reason that I was kind of disappointed in the book is because the reason they had to write this book in the first place was because of gaping holes in the extreme ownership philosophy. I mean, and the thing about it was, is when Jocko used to do Q&A a lot more on his podcast, it would almost always be about the concept of extreme ownership. It's like, well, hey, Jocko, you know, I did the extreme ownership thing on this and then it blew up in my face at work and I lost my job. And what could I have done differently? And the thing is, is in a lot of those answers, I don't, I wasn't really satisfied with how Jocko would answer some of those questions, right? Maybe I, I'm not nuanced enough or, or high-minded enough to kind of get what he was saying, but there was a lot of times I was like, yeah, that's not going to work. Like, that's not going to work at home. That's, that's certainly not going to work at the office. Like, I don't know why you would suggest anyone do that. And the other thing about this book that I found disappointing is that it was the same thing in every chapter. So there was a military story, again, from either their time uh, deployed or their time in training. And those were normally very, very exciting stories. I liked all those. There was a description of the principle, usually a short description of whatever principle they were talking about. And then there was an, an application to business story. But it, it got old. 
Like, I mean, because that's how extreme ownership was. So that's why I say they just, and again, I'm not hating these guys. Like they just wrote a second best-selling book off the heels of a, another successful best-selling book. And it's like, Hey, you've got the formula. Just keep doing it. They're like, they're kind of like the George Strait of leadership books right now. It's like George Strait wrote the same song like a thousand times over 40 years. And he's one of the biggest acts ever because he found the formula. People like the formula. They're going to continue to buy the results of that formula. So let's just keep going. So they just wrote a part two, I guess. But again, a lot of the things in this book, I don't feel like they add to extreme ownership. I feel like it proves that a lot of the things in extreme ownership just aren't that effective. Um, and so here's the deal. It's the most disappointing book that I read this year. Like 100%. It's the most disappointing book that I read in 2019. Part of that is because my expectations were so high. I was expecting to get a little bit something better out of this book. But here's the thing, and this might be surprising to you as well. I'm not going to say that you shouldn't read it, Right. If you've listened to the last two years where I've done the the best books of 2017 and 2018, those were books that I was like, do not read this book. Like under no circumstances ever should you even touch this book. And that's not what I'm going to say. If this book is on your mantle right now and you're about to read it, go and read it. If it's in your to read list for next year, keep it on there. I don't care. But just know that there are gaping holes even in this book, which could be by design perhaps. Maybe they're going to write a follow-up to this, another dichotomy of leadership, or, or just something like that. But but again, I love almost everything that Jocko Willink does. And, and Leif is, you know, kind of, you know, in Jocko's shadow, but the same thing. I love what those guys do. Um, I love the things that they've done for the military, for this country, for jujitsu, for business in general. I, I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a huge, huge fan. Just last week, I suggested a Jocko Willink video in the uh, in the show notes, right, that, that you should have your kids listen to. So I'm definitely all in. But again, there are massive issues with, with this book, and I think it's okay to point those things out. So the reason why they wrote this book was to you know kind of clear up some of the problems from the first book, because when people finally let the dust settle on the first book, it's like, now wait a minute, in, in practicality, that would never work because dot, 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 dot. So again, like I said, I'm not saying this is a bad book. I'm not saying this is a book that you shouldn't read, but it is certainly the most disappointing book I read in 2019, The Dichotomy of Leadership. And now guys, we've made it. You, you've been with me for the last almost 50 minutes or so, so congratulations, you made it all the way here, you made it to the end of the year. I'm going to go ahead and give you the best book that I read in 2019, so without further ado, it is The Professor in the Cage, Why Men Fight and Why We Like to Watch by Jonathan Goschal. So let me go ahead and read the description here. An English professor starts training in mixed martial arts, exploring the science and history behind the violence of men. When in MMA, when an MMA gym opens across the street from his office, Jonathan Gostel sees a challenge. Pushing 40, out of shape, and disenchanted with his job as an adjunct English professor, he works up the nerve and finds himself training for an all-out cage fight. He sees it not just as a personal test, but also as an opportunity to answer questions that have intrigued him for years. Why do men fight? And why do so many seemingly decent people love to watch? In The Professor in the Cage, Goschel unlikes his unlikely journey from the college classroom to the fighting cage drives an important new investigation into the science and history of violence. The surging popularity of MMA, a full-contact sport in which fighters punch, choke, and kick each other into submission, is just one example of our species' insatiable interest both in violence and in the rituals that keep violence in check. 
From duels to football to the roughhousing of children, humans are masters of what Gostrel calls the monkey dance, a dizzying variety of rule-bound contests that establish hierarchies while minimizing risk and social disorder. Gostrel's unsparing odyssey through extremes of pain, occasional humiliation, his wife's incredulity, and ultimately his own cage fight opens his and our eyes to the uncomfortable truth that, as brutal as these contests can be, the world would be a much more chaotic and dangerous place without them. Okay, so the reason why this is the best book that I read in 2019, and guys, this was the first book that I that I finished and started and finished in 2019, is I was expecting an autobiography. That's it. I was going into this. I read the same description that I just read to you guys. I'm like, oh, okay, this is a guy, 40, kind of fat, decided he was going to get in shape as opposed to becoming a triathlete. He decided to be an MMA guy. Finally, you know, maybe there's a guy in another gym that's the same as him. It's like, hey, well, how about you guys fight? Sure. They both signed on the dotted line. They both went in there and fought. Cool. Cool story. I, I can get behind that story, but I got way more, way more from this book because there is a lot of auto body audio. <laughs> sorry. One more time. Autobiographical stuff from this book. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of storytelling about this guy and why he walked over into that gym for the first time. Some of the experiences he had with injuries, some of the experiences he had with people that he told that he was training. They're like, why did you do that? Oh my gosh, that sounds so terrible. You're going to be like sweaty and bloody. and It's that kind of stuff, right? But he does a deep dive into a lot of different topics around violence and around, like it, like it said in the description about duels and, and rituals with violence and all these other cultures. Okay. And so one of the days, one of the ways that I want to elucidate for that, that for you is I want to give you four different quotes. So there's a lot of different quotes from here that I could have gave you, but again, this is the best book of 2019. So I'm going to spend a little bit of extra time on it, but I'm going to give you these four different little quotable sections from the book. So here's the first one. When I first joined the gym, I expected to write a book about the rapid rise of cage fighting in America and what its massive popularity says about us, not just as a nation, but as a species. I thought MMA was bad for the athletes who did it and bad for the society at large. I saw cage fighting as a metaphor for something darkly rotten at the human core. But my library research convinced me that MMA tells us nothing particularly interesting about our place or time. Everywhere and always, people have loved to watch men fight. And my gym research, sparring, interviewing, and finally fighting myself, upended all my other preconceptions. In short, I set out to write about the darkness in men, but I ended up with a book about how men keep the darkness in check. And that was early in the book, just a super, super quote. Again, I'll read the last part. In short, I set out to write a book about the darkness in men, but I ended up with a book about how men keep the darkness in check. Awesome, awesome start to this book. I'll go into the next quote here. We all are trained to think of stereotypes as stupid, lazy, and mean. But stereotypes about masculinity became so entrenched for a reason. They are mainly true. To be timid, muscularly weak, and emotionally shaky is now and has always been unmasculine. Masculinity is not a cultural invention. It is not the result of a conspiracy by men against women. It is a real thing that has evolved over millions of years as a response to the built-in competitive realities of male life. This isn't to suggest that masculinity is entirely innate, leaving no room for cultural variation. In ancient Greece, for example, one's status as a manly man wasn't compromised by public weeping or having sex with boys. And obviously, the brawny masculinity you'd find in a warrior society is a lot more, well, masculine than what you would find in a middle-class American suburb. But the difference would be of degree, not of kind. And there's another thing about being a man that Annabelle and Abby left out. 
Being a man has always required more than a penis. To earn the status of a real man, not an ersatz one, a guy must prove he has the right stuff. And I love that as well, because again, that goes completely against the culture that we have now about toxic masculinity and the patriarchy and all this nonsense. It's like, no, this is just the way it's always been. And this is how it's currently playing out. So I like that the author got into that. Here's a third quotable section that I want to give to you. It's a little bit longer than the other ones, but I think you will dig it. So here we go. In most societies, girls have rites of passage too, but with some gruesome exceptions, they don't rival the ordeals invented for boys. That girls will grow up to be real women is pretty much taken as a given. Masculinity is not. It must be one and one at all cost. Take tough man. The young men have to confront fear and danger to prove their masculinity. All the young women have to do is prove their femininity is reveal their bodies. Tough, violent societies have the toughest rites of passage. Softer and less violent societies have softer rites of passage. In the modern West, the male role has gone so soft that formal rites of passage survive only in certain subcultures, such as gangs, fraternities, and elite military units. Informal rites of passage, such as tough man or youth football, are a different matter. Western culture no longer needs most of its men to cultivate aggression and toughness. When there were bears in the woods or barbarians at the gates, everyone welcomed a certain ferocity in men. But now that our ferocious grandfathers has driven off the bears and killed the barbarians, male ferocity just complicates life in the family and the community. Where does this leave men today? Cervantes' hero, Don Quixote, loved tales of knights and chivalry, but he lived in a world where there were no more dragons to battle. So the crazed Quixote invented the world in his mind, creating imaginary monsters to slay and princesses to rescue. In his book, Fighting for Life, the scholar Walter Ong points out that there is a lot of Don Quixote in modern men. The qualities of traditional masculinity, bravery, toughness, stoicism, have less and less of a place in today's society, leading some commentators to prophesy the end of men. But deep down, when men need to feel like men, and so, like Quixote, we invent our own dragons. Taking crazy risks remains a prerequisite for manhood in most cultures, and if young men no longer take their risks in formal rites of passage, they do so on their own. YouTube offers an endless string of amateur videos from around the world showing young men of all hues and shades accomplishing heroic feats and ex- of exuberant stupidity. Indian boys dodging hurling, hurling trains. Urban climbers hanging one-handed from skyscrapers high above Moscow. American boys performing jackass stunts. This is what Fight Club is about. Males, some of whom have literally lost their testicles and are growing breasts, others of whom were castrated only in spirit, finding a way to be men in a post-masculine world. Again, guys, the entire book is like that. Like, even just reading that section, I'm just like, yes! Like, yes! I was not expecting that. I was expecting, you know, a story of a wimpy guy that became a less wimpy guy. And then the last one here, just another quick quote, is, uh, is this one here. An MMA gym is a man factory. It's where men go to hammer the softness, weakness, and timidity out of each other. Yes, fighting is dangerous and scary, but a fighter walks forward into fear with his gloves up and his chin down. And so for any of you guys that have trained any aspect of MMA, so boxing, Western boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai, jiu-jitsu, wrestling, any of those things, you know this to be true. And that's why I'm seemingly so adamant about children getting into jiu-jitsu and wrestling. Because, you know, there's potentially some issues with little kids. Um, If they're going to spar as a little kid and they're boxing or something like that and they get hit in the head, you know, I haven't done a lot of research on that, but I can't imagine that that's great. But there's nothing that can make you tougher as a little kid than doing jujitsu or wrestling. I'm just not convinced that there's anything else that's going to make you tough. 
And the thing about it is, is whenever you have that level of toughness in you, you apply that everywhere. You apply that in relationships. You apply that with, you know, sickness that you're fighting, any of those types of things. It just knocks that weakness out of you. And so again, guys, there, there's so many things I could have talked about for this book, but again, I don't want to really spoil it for you. But again, this is a book where the, the cover does not do it justice and even the description does not do it justice. It is an absolutely incredible book. Um, I'm actually astonished that I didn't even do a full episode on it this year, but you know, there was a lot of things to talk about this year in these last 50 episodes or so. But again, if you don't read this book, you're a moron and you're no longer allowed to listen to this podcast. So guys, the best book of 2019, The Professor in the Cage. Now, what I'm going to give you before we get out of here with the Quick Resilience Boost, I do want to give you a list of books that I'm excited to read in 2020. But in past years, I've told you what books I'm going to read in 2020, and then I don't always do it. I get distracted by other books or whatever the situation may be. So here's just a list of books that I may or may not get to next year, right? And here's the thing about this list of books. If you've read this book and the book sucks and it's on my to-read list, let me know. Hit me up on Instagram, send me an email, whatever the situation may be. If this is a book that's going to be a waste of my time, save me that time and let me know. I'm not going to give you a long description of each one of these. I'm just going to list them here verbally, and then we'll put it in the show notes too if we've got space, okay? So uh, Jordan Peterson, the first one, we don't know the name of this, but I think it's going to be 12 More Rules. So this is going to be another 12 Rules for Life book, but it's going to be an addition, an additional 12 Rules. And so... He had a delayed in his writing process uh, because his wife got sick and, you know, he kind of checked in to rehab, not for like abuse or anything like that, but just to kind of reset himself and things like that. And so the book was supposed to be out in early 2020, but it'll probably be out later in 2020 now. So whenever that comes out, I'll be looking forward to it. Um, there's another one. Uh, well, I'll just kind of list them here. So As a Man Thinketh by James Allen, Liberal Fascism by Jonah Goldberg, Ordinary Men by Christopher R. Browning. The Arm by Jeff Passan, Martin Luther by Eric Metaxas, The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt, American Buffalo by Steve Rinella, Call Sign Chaos, Chaos by General James Mattis or Jim Mattis, Alone at Dawn by Dan Schilling and Lori Chapman Longfritz, Not a Daycare by Everett Piper, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss and Tal Raz, Iron John by Robert Bly, and The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Okay, so some of those books are released this year. Some of those books are decades and decades old, but those are ones that I'm thinking about getting into next year. Uh, And so we'll see how that goes. But as always, guys, if you've got suggestions for me, send me an email, info at undaunted.life. Had some guys send me even some suggestions in between the last episode. So feel free to always shoot those my way. I'm glad that this content's out there for you. We always want to make sure that it's going to be there for you in the way that you want it. So before we let you guys out of here, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically we do that by providing content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today I've got Amazon links to all the books that I talked about. And then I've got just the the regular list of the other books that we're going to be looking at. So here's the deal. I can't put too many links in the show notes because there's like a character limit. So as it sits right now, you're at least going to get the list of each one of these. But if the the link doesn't come through, you're a big boy, take the name of the book, plug it into Amazon, plug it into your Audible, plug it into whatever you're doing, and just go ahead and find the book and pick that up. So all the books that we talked about today, they are right here in the show notes. 
Thank you guys, as always, for listening to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. If you would, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or Google Play, and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. If we deserve a five-star review, please leave us a five-star review to keep us five-star review rated and leave us a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the entirety of 2020, and I'm going to make an announcement about one coming up in your area soon. But if you want me to come speak to your men's event, on your podcast, to your team, at your company, whatever, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. Again, the email, info at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro or outro track on this podcast is our song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.